and thank you for listening to Anthropod. My name is Beth Dredarian, and I'll be your host today. At the 2017 American Anthropological Association, or AAA, conference, I caught up with professors Jessica Winnegar and Lara Deeb to discuss their recent book, Anthropology's Politics, Disciplining the Middle East. The book is the first academic study to shed critical light on the political and economic pressures that shape how U.S. scholars research and teach about the Middle East. Lara Deeb and Jessica Winnegar show how Middle East politics and U.S. gender and race hierarchies affect scholars across their careers, from the first decision to conduct research in the tumultuous region, to ongoing politicized pressures from colleagues, students, and outside groups, to hurdles in sharing expertise with the public. They detail how academia, even within anthropology, which is assumed to be a liberal discipline, is infused with sexism, racism, Islamophobia, and Zionist obstruction of any criticism of the Israeli state. Anthropology's politics offers a complex portrait of how academic politics ultimately hinders the education of U.S. students and potentially limits the public's access to critical knowledge about the Middle East. Laura started off our conversation by discussing the reasons that she and Jessica decided to write the book. So at the time we'd been writing the book, we had both been in the field of anthropology as undergrads, graduate students, and then you know, postdocs, faculty members, for well over a decade. And over the courses of our careers, you know, we both work in the Middle East, we had both seen and experienced different kinds of political pressures, pushback, mm-hmm. resistance to certain topics, resistance to certain people in the field, and also the embrace of certain topics and certain people in the field. And we were interested in how others in our field had experienced those pressures or embraces and in excavating patterns we saw and trying to analyze some of that Mm -hmm. politics in the context of the current political moment in the United States and in the context of the United States' history of intervention in the Middle East. And I also think that we sense that a lot of these pressures and pushback and the politics of doing Middle East anthropology were not just related to the history of U.S. empire in the region, but also the history of the discipline, especially in its American iteration in the context of U.S. higher education. And we were curious that there had been no ethnography of anthropologists ever done or ethnography of the institutional practice of anthropology, even in the historiography of anthropology, there really hadn't been very much done on sort of the social lives of anthropologists and how they might deal with particular structures of power in the U.S. Academy and structures of power that are created by and also resisted by some of the tools and theories of of anthropology. The third piece is that we're both of a generation, of an academic generation, that was trained after 1990, so after a kind of theoretical shift in the discipline, and that was either finishing up dissertations or on the job market after the events of September 11th, 2001, and its aftermath and the, and the U.S. wars in Afghanistan, invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, right? So it was a very particular kind of political moment. And many of our peers and people in our cohort, including ourselves, were very interested in having the discipline speak back to a new form or a reinvigorated form of U.S. violence mm-hmm. in the region. And the AAA wasn't speaking back. And a lot of us began to sort of question why, and there were efforts to make it speak back. And so part of our motivation also was to try to ask questions about, is it our generation? Are we Were we different from earlier generations? And we actually learned that we were not, in fact, particularly mm-hmm. different. But in that moment, imagine that we might have been. 
So we were sort of curious about these different historical moments and how both anthropologists and the institution, the AAA, that we call our academic association, were responding to these different mm -hmm. kinds of political moments. And also interested in thinking about the possibilities for institutions to be sites of speaking back or sites of resistance, whether that be the AAA or the Middle East Studies Association or smaller sub-academic organizations like sections, but also colleges and universities and particularly the classroom and hiring practices. And so we wanted to think a lot about the practice of anthropology in an activist way and what might be the institutional possibilities or constraints on that. When we started out, we actually first wrote a conference paper that was very specifically about our generation. The generation that was experiencing 9-11 and the U.S. invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan in the very early stages of their professional careers, so post-PhD on the market. And a generation that had been fully trained in this post-Orientalist, post-structuralist tradition, unlike our mentors who were not fully trained in that. So the post-1990s, post-critiques of representation in the mid-80s, mm -hmm. The generation uh, who took 1990s. those critiques absolutely for granted, basically. Right, exactly, right? exactly. And so we presented this conference paper at a conference at UCLA, and there was this amazing response where people from earlier academic generations and cohorts were coming up to me after the conference saying things like, we faced that too, or we had a very similar experience in the 70s with this. And I was saying things to them like, well, I didn't know that. Why did you tell it? That's not written. No one wrote about that. You were my mentor. Why did you share that with me? And then on the other hand, graduate students were coming up and saying, oh, wow, we, we want to know about this. We want to learn about this history. Mm -hmm. So the book actually came out of those conversations mm -hmm. and that interest. And then I think methodologically, we very deliberately interviewed a range of people who were trained in different historical moments. Mm -hmm. And we tried to make sure that, that our interlocutors were distributed mm -hmm. across generations and across race, ethnicity, gender, social class, mm -hmm. and location. And where they worked, where they where did they worked. work. Well, where they did their field work in the Middle East, but also where institutionally they work. Small liberal arts colleges, state schools, research one, private institutions, etc. So in the course of making generation a methodological project, we also realized it was an analytic for us because we discovered really important patterns in terms of how people experienced anthropology, how they experienced the Middle East, how they came to the discipline, how they came to their projects, and particularly the kinds of pressures that they felt related to various forms of politics, gender, race, ethnicity, and what became eventually the core of the book really was about Israel-Palestine politics. So Generation for us was both the methodology and an analytic. We interviewed over a hundred anthropologists, so it's really the largest set of interviews mm -hmm. of anthropologists about their social practice, in, I mm -hmm. think, in any publication. So the first chapter is about becoming a scholar. You look at the motivations for who becomes an anthropologist focusing on the Middle East and what factors influence their conversion mm -hmm. to the discipline and how they grow. Do you mm -hmm. want to share? Yeah, sure. That was a really, really fascinating chapter. And, and when we've presented parts of it to anthropology audiences, it's interesting how much some of the insights from that chapter resonate well beyond Middle East anthropology. What we found was across generations, the vast majority of people come to anthropology for its methodology, really, of, of taking seriously everyday people's kind of experiences and critiques of the world. And this comes from anthropologists' formative experiences being primarily liminal. So this was something we discovered 
in the interviews is that almost 100% of anthropologists had some sort of experience in their youth or early adulthood where they felt like they were liminal, whether they were second-generation immigrants from the, the Middle East, whether they were from a lower social class living in a more higher class area, whether they were from one religious group living in uh, an area where there's a dominant other religious group, whether they moved around a lot as members of military families, for example. And so those experiences of liminality led people to anthropology as a way to understand how people place themselves and social difference. And the other major interesting thing about that chapter we found was a near universal difference across the generations between white anthropologists and anthropologists of color as to why they made it to anthropology and Middle East anthropology in particular. So white anthropologists by and large, and actually by by and large I mean 100% of our interviewees, originally came to anthropology and Middle East anthropology as part of a kind of interest in the other and often a fascination with the other and many white anthropologists admitted a kind of orientalist fascination with the other. and. In the case of the Middle East, this obviously relates to Orientalist images of the Middle East as either this violent backward place, and so white anthropologists want to figure out either why are they that way, or I don't think they're that way, they're being stereotyped that way, so let me go find out the so-called truth, or positive, in quotes, Orientalist views of the Middle East as a space of fantasy. Whereas anthropologists of color were often drawn to anthropology as a way to understand their feelings of difference from, from the dominant sort of white society in the United States, and Middle East anthropology as a way to understand roots and a way to be activist about that. And so many white anthropologists, particularly of younger generations, we found became much more activist and obviously critical of how they originally got interested in anthropology in the Middle East, whereas anthropologists of color pretty much came to it through the activist appeal of anthropology. Mm -hmm. And a part of that context too is the majority, not all, but the majority of anthropologists of color working in the Middle East are of are Arab American uh, mm -hmm. or Muslim American or of Middle Eastern background. Not all, but most. So we heard a lot of stories about trying to understand things that were happening with my family or wanting to return to a, a point of origin or to another area in the region to try to understand the region better. But again, always with that activist inclination, whether that be to speak back to U.S. power in its various forms, whether that be very specifically to speak back to stereotypes. So a lot of it was about trying to address stereotypes. And then many of the white anthropologists who later came to those activist impulses came to those activist desires through feminism. So one of the, the other, another pattern we found is that feminist anthropologists, and white feminist anthropologists in particular, whether or not they had begun to be interested in anthropology because they saw activist potential there, eventually came to see anthropology as a space mm -hmm. to either, again, speak back to stereotypes, speak back to U.S. Mm -hmm. power. Were there significant fractures in these patterns or ch changes, upticks in people mm -hmm. coming to anthropology after 9-11 or changes in the way that people mm -hmm. began to understand their role as mm -hmm. activists or come to activism because of 9-11? What we see with 9-11 is an, a major uptick in people wanting to study the Middle East in anthropology. So the numbers really, really increased. And we also see an uptick in the generation that was coming of academic age around 9-11, just finishing their dissertations, just hitting the market, wanting to make, as Laura had said, make the discipline speak back or take a more public role in relationship to that the wars were going on. But the issue that really defined the early 2000s for Middle East anthropologists, and I would say activist anthropologists more broadly, is that the institutions of anthropology like the AAA, 
anthropology departments, colleges and universities did not seem to be ready to deal with the war on terror and to be critical of the war on terror and to support students who are targeted by discourses of the war on terror in adequate ways. So that would, I would say, be the main effect of 9-11. So for example, we were involved in a resolution campaign in the early 2000s, uh, right after the war began in Afghanistan and Iraq to have the AAA condemn the wars and the resolution failed. And a number of res Middle East resolutions we put on the table at that time failed. And we talk about this in the book, it was only until American public opinion towards the war shifted that the AAA ended up passing a resolution against the war on terror, and that was a resolution that was put forward not by Middle East anthropologists. For our curious listeners, the Iraq resolution passed in 2007. So I think that part of what motivated the book, to get back to the original question, is the disjuncture that Middle East anthropologists feel between what they're experiencing and what they're talking about and the discipline and institutions of anthropology. I like that you covered at the book the, the differences between Middle East anthropologists versus other anthropologists, whereas our expertise sometimes, oftentimes, is discredited as too affective, too biased. And the AAA has passed resolutions condemning things that have happened in Guatemala or South mm -hmm. America, other mm -hmm. places, other mm -hmm. parts of the world, uh, with no problem. But somehow the expertise of Middle Eastern anthropologists mm -hmm. is so often discredited in those mm -hmm. ways. Mm -hmm. It's also two region-specific shifts that I think we see that are relevant to the question you asked. One is that sociocultural anthropology of the Middle East grew in size and numbers of anthropologists in numbers of members of the AAA mm -hmm. later than sociocultural anthropology in some other areas, mm -hmm. right? For example, Latin America. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there was no Middle East section Before until 1990 something. Yeah. And before that, there was a different formation, right, that we can talk about later, called Murga, that was a proto-Middle East section. But the numbers were much smaller. The numbers of Middle East anthropologists, the numbers of anthropologists choosing to do their fieldwork in the region has grown exponentially since the 70s. Another change is that the numbers of anthropologists who are of Middle Eastern background has grown exponentially. So I think we estimated that in the current generation that was trained after we were, people who are either starting jobs now or in assistant professorships or in postdocs are at nearly 40% of anthropologists of the region are in some way have heritage linked to the region. And that's a major, major, major shift from earlier eras. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing that has shifted is the relationship to Palestine and to politics in support of Palestinian rights and in relation to research in Palestine. There was, from the beginning, anthropologists, especially feminist anthropologists again, but not only feminist anthropologists, but especially feminist anthropologists, were supporting Palestinian rights, but because of the political context that I think we'll talk about in a moment, were unable to do so in as public ways, and people were heavily discouraged from studying in Palestine. Whereas today, we found in our a different piece we did in an annual review article of anthropology of the region, Palestine is the third most frequent field site mm -hmm. for anthropological studies. And in the generations trained after 1990, Palestine politics was a key reason mm -hmm. for people entering anthropology. So that's another shift that's really region specific. Mm -hmm. so Jessica was just talking about how we, we were working in these institutions that were completely unprepared to support students, to support faculty, to and to, to frankly to teach. I mean, we saw undergrad enrollments in Middle East related classes 
skyrocketed. And a lot of institutions were doing things like scrambling to provide Arabic language training. So all of this was part of that immediate post 9-11 context. The other thing that I think shifted things in Middle East anthropology is, you asked about 9-11, the other thing that was going on in the region right then is the Second Intifada. It wasn't just about 9-11, the war in Iraq, the war in the U.S. war in Afghanistan. It was also about the Second Intifada, especially for people who worked in Palestine, but not only for people who worked in Palestine. It was a larger context mm -hmm. that I think mm -hmm. was influencing these shifts. Mm -hmm. With the rise of the war on terror, there continued to be, perhaps not surprisingly, discrimination against anthropologists from the Middle East, particularly those understood to be Muslim. And this was gendered, so we had a lot of evidence. And it predates 9-11, but it became much more intense, I think, after 9-11 in our interviews where male anthropologists from the region have been treated by other anthropologists who work in other regions or by administrators or by students or by colleagues in other disciplines as somehow sort of violent or oppressing women. And then female anthropologists from Middle East backgrounds presumed to be Muslim being treated as either tokens or spokespeople for Islam or oppressed and having this feeling that they always, all of these anthropologists always have to speak about Islam or speak on behalf of or defend or critique and usually critique actually. And so the kind of much more deeply rooted sexism and racism of the discipline of anthropology we found became more in, intense in particular ways with the rise of the war on terror. At this point, our conversation turned from how geopolitical shifts in the U.S. and Middle East influenced the ways in which anthropologists come to the discipline, and Jessica introduced the major findings of chapters two and three, which cover graduate school training and finding a job. So chapters two and three are really a pair that uh, follow academic trajectory. After chapter one, becoming an anthropologist, chapter two, navigating minefields in graduate school related to region, race, ethnicity, and gender mainly, and then chapter three about navigating minefields in finding a job and teaching and, and research getting and, and getting tenure mm -hmm. and public speaking. Well, I think one of the things that um, we find is at every stage, students and scholars have confronted to different degrees, and obviously depending on who they are, what they're studying, sexism, racism, and what we talk about as compulsory Zionism in the book, an unwillingness to allow for the discussion of Palestinian rights in ways that criticize Zionism or criticize the Zionist policies of the Israeli state. And it takes different shapes at different times, right? So in graduate school, this might be a professor refusing to work with you. This might be difficulty finding funding. It's also related to topic, right? So, so you have a kind of way in which topic of study becomes a part of an intersectional analysis with the gender and mm -hmm. the race of the anthropologist mm -hmm. doing the study, and these things come mm -hmm. together. What's interesting about our job market data is, you know, you can never know why someone does or doesn't get a job, but we did hear from people who were on search committees who described to us contexts where people were not hired simply because they were of an Arab background, or were not hired because they will not hire anyone who works on Palestine because it's too politically problematic, mm -hmm. or because mm -hmm. a Zionist committee member or a Zionist colleague in another department refused to have that person on mm -hmm. campus. Mm -hmm. So it, we were getting the job market perspective mm -hmm. from the people doing mm -hmm. the hiring, mm -hmm. not as opposed to from mm -hmm. the people experiencing various kinds mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. One of our other interesting findings was related to sexism was what now is really illegal and would be widely understood to be illegal forms of 
gender-based discrimination very, very prominent from the 60s through the 80s, and then it shifts to very, very subtle microaggressions that are persistent across the experience of both graduate school and teaching, which are related to things about comments about dress, comments about choice of partner that women face, comments about childbearing and rearing. And I don't think this will be any surprise to the listeners of this podcast, particularly because we're in a moment now where sexual harassment is really being talked about on a much more open, broader scale. But it's really important to remember that it wasn't always talked about. And even just a few years ago, you couldn't talk about these things in such an open context. And so what we are trying to do with our book is to really lay that history open and also to honor the work that our foremothers did and actually opening opening opportunities for us. And it's some things we often forget that they went through, the way that they built the field for us with all of perhaps the white liberal feminism that came with it. But we do need to recognize that history. It should not have been one of the most surprising aspects of the interviews. Mm-hmm. But it was one of the aspects where I think because we, in some ways, take some of the work that our elders did for granted, mm-hmm. it was a really good reminder of mm-hmm. the structural sexism that scholars face. We have students who want to go to grad school being basically point blank told, no, mm-hmm. you know, you can't study that. No, you can't go to graduate school to mm-hmm. do that mm-hmm. because you are mm-hmm. a woman. And, and, and also fir- by, by scholars who are still working in these universities, mm-hmm. by male, senior male scholars. People being the first woman hired in their department and being paid at 70% of the rates of mm-hmm. male scholars being hired at the same time, or being the first woman hired in the building where there are no women's bathrooms anywhere mm-hmm. in the building or nearby. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just structural conditions that we mm-hmm. sometimes, mm-hmm. I think, forget. Mm-hmm. Some of the, the responses to our book have actually been enlightening as to the persistence of racism and sexism in the academy because some of the both written reviews published or unpublished or comments we've received in emails or in person are very critical of our use of the term white and particularly white male. Coming from anthropologists who might have no problem talking about Arab women or Saudi women. So what happens when we try and categorize or when we take white males as a category of analysis, the kind of resistance we got to that I think is evidence of this still persistent sexism and racism in the field. The white male anthropologists refused to be categorized themselves. And there were white male anthropologists who were amazing feminists, and I have to give a shout out here to Larry Michalak, who basically built what is now the Middle East section in its much earlier version and did all of the secretarial labor to create the first newsletter for Middle East anthropologists. So obviously there are exceptions, but it is interesting Mm -hmm. how the pushback from our book has come from that, and there's been also Zionist pushback. Another finding of chapters two and three in our research for chapters two and three is that scholars from the region, we call them region-based scholars, those that have family ties to the Middle East, have been and continue to be routinely diminished in either very overt or microaggressive ways as somehow having bias, bias that disables their objective view of what's going on in their geographic area of research. What is also interesting about how those scholars are positioned is that they're often expected to work in their country of origin. And if they want to work in another part of the region 
or even if they want to work not in the region, there's pressure to know you should work in your country of origin because you will have special access. But then at the same time, they're denigrated for having that access either because they're viewed to be too biased or they're viewed to have it much easier because they haven't had to do all the hard labor that white people have had to do to gain this kind of access. So there's this real double or triple bind that scholars from the region find themselves in and this was communicated much more overtly in previous years and now it's much more subtly but still very present. We also find the treatment of scholars from the region to be really problematic on the job market. So again, the assumptions that we find in graduate school that are very gendered about female or male scholars having to speak for Islam or somehow being oppressed or oppressing because of their perceived Muslimness, we also found this on the job market in interviews, comments about people's clothing, comments about where they come from, comments about accent, just a number of ways that in I think that a lot of anthropologists who don't work in the Middle East and white anthropologists don't realize that they're doing when they engage with these scholars. The other big issue that came up consistently on the job market is around Palestine politics. So in job talks, but also in other public lectures. So there's also a space here where the job talk is also a public lecture. So these kinds of patterns you would see in both contexts. The other area where we see on the job market, we see a great deal of pressure is around Palestine politics, where... I think we already mentioned that a lot of departments are hesitant to hire scholars who have worked in Palestine because in their view that they're avoiding problems or they're avoiding political problems in the future. No matter what the political views of the hiring committee or the department, it's this idea that there is pressure on scholars who speak out about Palestine and who speak out for Palestinian rights. There's institutional pressure. There's administrative pressure. We now have these websites like Canary Mission, the precursor of which has they've been around since since the internet, since 2000 mm-hmm. or earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there are even black books. I mean, this is exactly. another thing. We found black books that circulate in Northern California in the early 1980s with lists of scholars who should not be trusted mm-hmm. on Middle East and Palestine issues. Mm-hmm. So there's a great deal of pressure on departments, but on institutions and on administrators, and then also public pressure. So hiring committees, people on hiring committees are not living in a vacuum. They Mm -hmm. see things like the very public Norman Finkelstein case, or tenure cases of Nadia Abu'l-Hajj or of Joseph Mm Massad, and they're aware that these pressures exist. So no matter what the political views of the hiring committee, there is a sense of it'll just be easier if we don't have someone who goes there in Mm -hmm. our department, if we don't have to deal with that. So that really... And I think it's changed a bit, but made it for a very long time very difficult for anyone who worked on Palestine to get a job. Mm -hmm. The other thing that would happen is in the job hiring process during campus visits, no matter what you work on. So no matter where you work in the Middle East. You could work in Egypt. You could work in Lebanon. You could work in Morocco. There was always a question that tried to suss out where you stood politically on Palestine. Palestine. And maybe that question gets asked in the car on the way to the airport. Maybe that question gets asked over a glass of wine at dinner. But it's always asked. Maybe it gets asked at a job talk. Maybe it gets asked, yeah, Mm -hmm. publicly at a job talk. It's always hovering over Middle East anthropologists' experience in graduate school and on the job market and in the classroom. And this will not also surprise listeners, perhaps it will, but there's been tremendous pressure among junior professors, untenured professors, non-tenure line professors who we weren't able to cover so much in the book, unfortunately, and someone should do that research, to not go against 
the grain of compulsory Zionism in the classroom. So monitoring of syllabi, student moles in the classroom, these go back to the 1980s, 70s, even late 70s. Deans calling faculty in about certain things on their syllabi. Uh, Joe Sacco's book, Palestine. Joe Sacco's Deans do not like it when you teach Joe Sacco's book. Right, which is a graphic novel. (laughs) Student evaluations uh, related to Palestine being taken into account in tenure reviews. Students loudly disrupting class, being disrespectful of the professor. This still happens, and also now the new campaign of pictures of professors accusing them of being anti-Semitic being pasted around campus. So all of these things affect particularly unprotected, untenured faculty, whether it's on the job market or when they first get the job, which we found, and this is another major argument of our book, that scholars self-censor. They self-censor around many issues, but primarily around the issue of Palestine. Until tenure, oftentimes until they receive full professorship. Mm -hmm. This is also one of the areas where there has been consistent pushback and pressure against scholars since the beginnings of Middle East anthropology and since scholars were, in fact, writing about Palestine or talking about Palestine. But it does also shift dramatically. And when I say shifted dramatically, I mean, first of all, far more scholars are, in fact, speaking publicly about Palestinian rights than they were in before. And I don't think this will be a surprise to listeners, but the campus discourse has shifted mm-hmm. pretty significantly. As after the foundings of SJPs, um, Students, for Justice, Students for Justice in Palestine groups, after Oslo, there was actually an opening where you had more scholars um, in multiple disciplines researching and writing about Palestine. So there's been an opening, a gradual opening over the past few decades around these issues. And what we see in response is an intensified backlash. What I think we're seeing are intensified public attacks on scholars and increasingly on undergraduate students as well and graduate students through things like Canary Mission and other groups. But at the same time, there's far more discussion of Palestinian Mm -hmm. rights and the discourse on Palestine on campuses has shifted. Mm -hmm. So these things are kind of happening Mm -hmm. in a dialectical process together. When we talk about backlash and opposition and where the compulsory Zionism is coming from, can you share some of the groups and people behind this. There is some policing that comes from within the academy we've talked about, but there are also external groups. When we talk about the intensification of backlash against scholars who talk about Palestinian rights or scholars who support the boycott, since the 70s, 80s, there there were printed black books, typed up, printed, Xeroxed, handed out with people's names on them. And I think the Middle East Studies Association actually had a resolution condemning that black books um, in the early 80s. What has contributed to the intensification of this are a number of factors. One is, again, as I said, I think it's a backlash to the fact that we do, in fact, have much more discussion of Palestinian rights on college campuses. So college campuses are seen as a front in the battle for undergrad minds on the issue. And there's actually a white paper written by the David Project in 2012 that calls out liberal arts college campuses in particular as the sort of new front in the battle. So this is a very deliberate move. So that's one piece. The other piece is the internet. It's, you can disseminate information about anybody very quickly online. And so that has changed the nature and the tenor and the intensity of these attacks. But the third factor is the development and the growth of numerous external organizations that range from two people in Santa Cruz who basically single-handedly create internet-based attacks on scholars and have networks of letter writers who then send in numerous emails to provosts and vice provosts and start calling their offices to groups like the David Project, 
which has made films, has attacked a number of scholars in a very organized manner. And most recently, we have a group called the Academic Engagement Network that boasts former college presidents, prominent anthropologists, and others in their leadership. And the Academic Engagement Network is particularly problematic because they are using the language of academic freedom and the language of protecting speech about Israel, and they're deploying anti-Semitism in a really problematic way to condemn any criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic. And of course, criticizing the policies of any state mm -hmm. is fair game, mm -hmm. and Israel is a state. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, that's one of the more recent ones. And then you also have the Canary Mission, which has these very glossy website profiles of faculty, students, and undergraduate students. I think the Canary Mission is taken less seriously in academia because it's very obvious that this is an external group that is just blacklisting people. But undergrads are very concerned about it when it comes to employment, right? Because if a potential employer Googles them and then their Canary Mission page pops up, they and don't know whether they're Semitic, exactly. terrorist, lover. Um, and so that's, it's sort of attacking at a different level. Our very first sentence in the book is, we never would have written this book without tenure. And that is because we are speaking against compulsory Zionism in the book. We're laying bare the gender race hierarchies in the discipline of anthropology in the academy. And the book's been called, and not to brag here, it's been called a brave book for that reason. And I think that we definitely needed to get tenure before the book came out. And one of our close colleagues said, don't ruin your careers while writing this book. But then in our conclusion, we discussed a shift in the AAA where Palestine can now be mentioned. I think it's, it's really important for listeners maybe just coming into the academy right now to understand that the broader acceptance of the concept of working on Palestine and talking about Palestine and having very public discussions at the AAA around Palestine really only started to occur with any kind of frequency and be accepted after 2010. It's very, very, very recent. And so for us to see, for example, the boycott movement becomes so prominent in the AAA and to have so many people embrace the boycott movement is nothing short of itself a stunning revolution. And even though eventually the boycott vote itself was defeated in the AAA, the fact that it was only a 39 vote loss and the fact that it was the biggest business meeting to vote that resolution in originally in history since the Vietnam War really signifies a massive sea change in the discipline. So I think, again, if you look at the beginning of the book, we wouldn't have written this without tenure, to now when there's scholars, many graduate students working on Palestine, some of whom are getting jobs, and the boycott movement becoming more mainstream, there really has been a shift. But as Laura said, the opposition has gotten way more intense and has supporters at the highest reaches of government, including in the proposed appointment of Kenneth Marcus. I think what we're seeing also is back in, in the 70s, in these early meetings of Middle East anthropologists starting to organize themselves, there was some discussion of Palestine, but in a small room with 20 people present. Mm -hmm. It wasn't public in the AAA. There was a 1982 resolution passed against the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. And a resolution in 1982 in support of Palestinian universities. We've moved from a moment where you could barely talk about Palestine. I should say, after that 1982 resolution was passed condemning the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, there were two years of letters in anthropology news basically accusing the AAA of being anti-Semitic, for passing that resolution and the backlash was very intense and the anthropology news editor basically said we're not having any more letters on this subject mm -hmm. because two years later they were still coming in we've moved from that 
to a point today where not only is Palestine being talked about at the AAA in business meetings on panels, but we're no longer just debating whether or not Palestinian rights are important. We are now debating what is the best method by which anthropologists can support Palestinian rights. And I think that shift, we can't underestimate how massive that change in discourse has been. It still remains the case, however, that as of 2017, Despite the proposal of many resolutions related to Palestine and Palestinian rights in the AAA, not one has ever passed. And in comparison with other colonized and oppressed groups around the world, it is still a blot on this association's reputation. Mm -hmm. I want to say something about the development of regional expertise and its relationship to U.S. foreign affairs. So one of the insights of our book about Middle East anthropology that I think is really relevant to those who work in other world regions is that the relationship between the notion of anthropology as a potentially applied science to solve human problems or applied in the sense of speaking truth to power versus anthropology as a purely ivory tower endeavor, that tension flares up whenever the region that anthropologists work on is being targeted by U.S. power, military power or soft power. And so we find, for example, with the rise of the war on terror, tensions among Middle East anthropologists as to whether or not we should work with the government somehow or speak to the government somehow or not. Would anthropology be compromised in that way? What are the ethics around that? We found very early evidence of this going back to the 1950s related to the use of anthropology to assist oil exploration in Saudi Arabia. So it doesn't just relate to the war on terror. And also that relates to obviously funding, whether it's government funding, which tends to increase for areas of foreign policy concern for the U.S. whenever there are wars or U.S. interests in other region, oftentimes private funders will put special resources in that or do more awarding of grants and fellowships in those areas. So what does that mean? What we think of is kind of like a poison chalice, which is a phrase that comes from one of our interlocutors. When you're given this potential ability to speak to the government, to speak to the public, to get funding, but it seems to come with all of the poison and the strings that go along with U.S. imperialism. Okay. In the Which, AAA, yes. these issues were discussed most overtly in relation to the Human Terrain Systems Project. But among Middle Eastern anthropologists, it was more subtle. So the kinds of things Middle East anthropologists are often asked to do are things like attend a private conference in Washington, D.C. of policymakers that is not open forum or consult on a report. You're not embedded with the military, mm -hmm. but you're asked to do kinds of things here. And the majority of our interlocutors did not do that kind of work and refused to do so, whether out of a principle, I will not work with the US government, or because they simply didn't think anything they had to say would be taken seriously mm -hmm. by those policymakers. There was a significant minority that did do that kind of work, always out of a motivation to educate. So it was always a, okay, I will go lecture at this military academy because I think they need to know what they're doing and I have knowledge I can provide. But there was also a generational divide there where the anthropologists who were willing to do that kind of educational work with government, military, or policymakers were overwhelmingly trained before 1990. Mm -hmm. It's not like they were doing it for some sort of national patriotic no. purpose. They 
we're truly trying to do it so that the military would kill less people and cause less damage in the regions. But some of them eventually found that the lessons they taught were not necessarily listened to. And this really goes back to the whole fight at the, I believe it was the 1971 business meeting in the AAA where Margaret Mead and her cohort were arguing still for anthropology in the service of the nation. And the, the radical caucus of the anti-Vietnam War folks were against that, and they passed 15 resolutions at that meeting. Some of those folks came out during the boycott resolution and said, thank you, this is what the AAA used to feel like in the Vietnam War era during that activist moment. And I think the difference between that minority of older generation scholars who were willing to do that kind of educational work to help the U.S. military or the policymakers basically, as Jessica mm -hmm. said, kill fewer people in the region, and those who refused point blank to do so, was a difference in their willingness to think that the knowledge provided might actually do some good. Mm -hmm. Where scholars trained after 90, 1990 overwhelmingly, there was absolutely no faith that anything one said to a policymaker would go anywhere where it would do any good. Where there were scholars in trained in earlier generations who thought, well, maybe this will make a positive difference. Mm -hmm. So it's maybe I should try. To conclude the interview, I asked Jessica and Laura to comment on the reception of their book. The reception that we've received has been mostly positive. And some, what has been interesting to me has been the degree of surprise among anthropology colleagues who do not work in the Middle East in relation to the kinds of pressures and pushback that scholars have faced. And I think that surprise came out in relation to our book, but also in relation to the pushback the AAA received when it was con even considering the vote on the boycott resolutions. People in the AAA who were seeing the kinds of responses the AAA was getting for allowing the vote to go forward also expressed this kind of surprise. So that's one thing that I thought was really important that the book did was it really opened the eyes of some of our non-Middle East anthropology colleagues to the kinds of political pressures that Middle East anthropologists are working with. I think that what's been really interesting to see in the responses to our book is a feeling of deep appreciation and relief by our elders who went through these things and were not, that these things were not, you know, spoken about. When we presented this book at different universities, some of these older generation scholars, feminists, they would cry or hug us or just be so thankful that this is now written about in the open. And we also had a lot of really positive response from junior scholars who feel like the book paved a way for them in terms of teaching them about the potential minefields that they might face, but also normalizing work on the region and normalizing critique of these structures of power. So I think that there's been a big embrace by different constituents reading the book. And one of the things that I hope does not happen is that I really don't want the book to scare anyone. I've also had a few conversations with graduate students, for example, where some of the dynamics in the book were alarming. Not that they hadn't experienced some of this stuff themselves, but it, the extent of it, the institutionalization of some of these structural power dynamics were, were frightening, right? And so, you know, we talked a little bit about how one of the responses historically of scholars and students, especially graduate students, people on the job market, adjuncts, and pre-tenure scholars has been self-censorship. And I don't want to see the book increase that self-censorship. I mean, I think people need to think about context carefully and make very careful decisions about what they do and do not say. We're, this is certainly not a call for hypervigilance. One of the things that I see is I do think that this shift in discourse that we're seeing is really important. And I think that what it's a call is for people to A, understand the context in which they're working and make 
their own decisions within that context, and B, for colleagues who are in protected positions and colleagues who are not Middle East scholars to speak out and to do a better job of supporting scholars who are in precarious positions and scholars of the Middle East and scholars who are expressing things like support for Palestinian rights and scholars of color. More, and I think we all across the academy need to be doing a better job of using protected positions when we have them to support those that do not. This was where our conversation concluded, and what an apt note to close on. Thank you so much for listening. Our sincere thanks to Professors Jessica Winnegar and Lara Deep for their time, and to Catherine Sacco for executive producing this episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe to Anthropod on iTunes and access the entire Anthropod archive at colanth.org. Also, please attend the Society for Cultural Anthropology's upcoming virtual conference, which will take place on April 19th through the 21st. The theme for the conference is Displacements, and it costs $10 to attend. Registrants get access to three days of programming, including the David Schneider Plenary with Jason DeLeon, Stephanie Spray, Lisa Stevenson, and Eduardo Cohn, all for less than the cost of a movie ticket. You can find more information at displacements.jhu.edu. Thank you again for listening.